0: On today's episode, we have our usual book news, and James Dalzow joins us to talk about concise reform dogmatics. All this and more ahead on the Reformed Media Review. This is the Reformed Media Review, a podcast devoted to talking about reformed books, culture, and other forms of media. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today James Dahlzell, who's a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's good to have you here, James, in person. Good to be with you. We also have Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringoes, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff?
1: I'm doing fine, Camden. How are you on this cold, cold Ooh,
0: morning? It is cold, isn't it? I walked the dog this morning, and he wasn't, he wasn't even really excited. And So I know when he's not excited, <laughs> then it's really cold. But uh, <laughs> we also have with us the mobile Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, calling in from the f- car today. Don't crash, Jim.
2: Oh, thanks, Camden. I'll
0: try not to. <laughs> <laughs> we hope everything's all right. We ha- we haven't we don't have that law yet here in Pennsylvania as uh, as New York does about the uh, talking on the cell phone. But hopefully, you have a Bluetooth and don't say if you hands-free. don't.
2: I got my hands free device. So there we I'm go. Okay. So he's oh, safe. Sweet. Yes, New
0: Jersey. There, has that, that just that means everything's health. okay then.
3: I- <laughs> well, aren't we trying to ban okay. all all cell phone use uh, across America in cars
0: and iPods on the sidewalk? Oh, terrible! Yeah, <laughs> dangerous. But we don't want that to happen, of course, because many of you do listen on your iPod, and we want you to be able to listen to these programs wherever you are. Uh, and so today, we've got one lined up for you, hopefully wherever you are, walking on the sidewalk or driving in your car. We're going to be reviewing Concise Reform Dogmatics, uh, but first we want to mention uh, a few new books, and, and Jeff has a, a couple excerpts he wants to read from one of those.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's just one excerpt from the book John Calvin, A Pilgrim's Life by Herman J. Selderhaus, or Selderhois. Uh, he is the professor of church history and church polity at the Theological University uh, at Appledorn in the Netherlands, and in fact, the major book that we're going to discuss, the the writers are teach at the same school. Yeah, this is, uh, of course, uh, one of uh, oh my goodness, several new books that are coming out on Calvin because this is the 500th birthday of Jean Covan, and uh, and uh, one amongst many. But this is this is a book that is engagingly written. In fact, I read this paragraph to my daughter Carolyn as we were sitting in the uh, doctor's office. Uh, my poor daughter had a has, has a terrible head cold, and we thought it was, might be something more serious than that. But thankfully, it wasn't. But uh, she got a chuckle out of this little chap, out of this little paragraph. It's dealing with it's within the first chapter of the book uh, on Kelvin, and it's, um, it's talking about his uh, one of his uh, college experiences. Okay, and it's talking about a change from one school to another. And anyone familiar with uh, John Calvin knows that he his father initially wanted him to train as a priest, and then his father ran afoul of the church authorities, and 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 then had him changed to train to become a lawyer. And just as he was about to make that change, his father died, so he went to back to the liberal arts. Uh, but this is in the midst of all that. Uh, well, what looks to me like almost like a chaotic educational experience. So here we go. Uh, On page 13, aside from Courtier, there was not much to recommend the College de la Marche, above all because its environment was too liberal for anyone desiring to become a priest. This was actually what Calvin's father intended for him, and within a few months he was transferred to the College de Montague in the Quartier Latin where he became a boarding student. Intellectually, the move was certainly an improvement, but this institution was known for launching nothing less than an assault on the physical condition of its students. Hygiene at De Montague was so appalling that Erasmus, whose own stay at the college left him with bad health and and an abundance of lice and fleas, (laughs) wrote that he knew many others who had still not overcome the illnesses they had contracted there. Writing 30 years after his studies at the College de Montague, Erasmus recalled the hard beds, sleepless nights, and spoiled food as if he had spent the previous night in his old school. We find no such complaints about the college from Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, whose four years there overlapped with one of Calvin's, but François Rabelais referred to it as the College of Lice and likewise wrote, that if he were king of Paris, he would set fire to the entire building, including the teaching staff. <laughs> now, there you go. That that really sets the tone for the whole book. So when I say that this is readable and fascinating, I trust that you believe me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, we know sometimes academics can get caught up in their work and neglect some of the more basic things of life, but uh, <laughs> that's a little bit extreme.
1: Pathetic is the word. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, man. I noticed uh, also uh, a new book. There is uh, a, uh, a book on the Minor Prophets, an exegetical and expository commentary by Thomas Kaminsky. Kamisky, I should say. Have you seen that? Yeah,
1: Matt Kamisky.
3: That's, That's actually a, a reprint, reprint yeah. of, of a three-volume work, multi-authored, and uh, my own experience. I've used it for Malachi and Jonah and both, both times that I used it, my own pastoral experience, it was, it was an excellent uh, volume. Hmm. Very, uh, yes. technical, technically oriented yes. uh, on the Hebrew, uh, but very, very insightful. And for the space of, that it takes on your bookshelf, you, you get a lot of uh, food for thought and great insight.
1: How they're putting I, it in one volume, James, <laughs> blows my mind.
3: Uh, I, yeah, I have no idea because the th- I thought the three <laughs> volumes were all quite large. They are.
1: I, I, yeah, I was just they are. They must. It must be a a very huge tome, or or they've reduced the print size. It's it's over. A th- what is it? Fourteen hundred pages, I think.
3: Yeah, my guess is. I mean, it'll probably be very thin pages, but I mean, it's it was probably either not going to come back in print or be a one volume because doing the three volume and they used to do it in kind of a nice a nice cloth bound, yes. correct?
1: So. The set that I have is the original, and they're and they're big, aren't they? The originals are rather large. Yeah, and I think the, the print was nice, a nice size, but they probably had to reduce that.
3: Well, I, just having it available to to uh, current readers is is useful because when something goes out of print, it usually goes out of mind, and this is one you definitely want yes, to yes. Uh, to have. Now we I mentioned
0: believe- we mentioned that one back in episode five, but I did want to mention it's on the. Westminster Bookstore website now featured, and it's half off. You can get it for oh, thirty four ninety nine. Oh. That,
1: that's definitely worth it. I I think I paid over a hundred for the three volumes in the set that I have. Is yeah.
3: this the same? Now, this the man who edited this is deceased, I believe. I yes, I and, believe
1: Macomiskey is gone to and, be with the Lord.
3: Now, I think is it? Did he also? Is he also the one that wrote a book on the covenants? Uh, yes he did the okay. covenants of promise. He is he's a he's a Westminster grad actually from way back when.
1: But I understand that it's a, it's a, he was attempting to uh bring together a voss and uh some aspects of dispensationalism. I could be wrong on that, but uh uh but yes, he he did write a book on the covenants uh and he is connected with with, with a Westminster or was connected, I should say, now with the Lord, so
3: which, is a, a, which is a better connection than even Western. That's right. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, Are there any other new books we wanted to mention?
1: Well, we, we, we mentioned several yesterday, of course, uh, on the recording of uh, Christ the Center, but I guess we would want to re mention the, uh, the other Calvin book that's, that's coming out uh, by Willem Vance Spiker. Uh, which is what, a brief, a Calvin, a uh, brief uh, introduction to his life and thought or something to that effect. I, I think I'm butchering the title, but and that's going to be a Westminster John Knox Press uh, release. He's, he's one of those great Dutch uh, church historians, I think, that uh, he may, I could be wrong here, but uh, he may reflect the Utrecht School of uh, historical research uh, that uh, Richard Muller and Carl Truman and those men uh, are all involved with. Basically, a more favorable uh, reading of
3: Reformed scholasticism.
1: Yes, that would, that would be one of their hallmarks. Uh, rigorous, rigorous research and methodology uh, in the primary sources. Rather than taking a swipe at, at scholasticism from a distance, so uh, but anyway that book is uh due out the end i think the end of this month.
0: Hmm. Well, if that's uh if that's all, i i do want to also mention a couple more specials uh, at the Westminster bookstore. The Bible eights out, of course we've mentioned before, uh has some really neat new features including a cross-reference window. Um the the patristics are in there, the the church fathers are in there now and searchable. There's a lot of handy things available you can also pick up a new book called get out of my face by <laughs> rick horn uh which is a book on dealing with uh, angry teenagers i think uh and that's available too i know they've sold i believe thousands of those they did a real nice introductory price and that that book i think they sold 1500 in a in maybe a week or so, maybe less. Wow! wow. And so, um, wow. I don't know if I'm supposed to divulge that. A
3: lot of angry teenagers. How do you get this inside information, Camden?
0: Oh, I don't know. You can follow their <laughs> blog. Oh, do they tell you? They have a blog, but um. Anyway, uh, we might as well get on to our uh, the main reason why we're here today is to review concise reform dogmatics, uh, affectionately called by the same, these same bookstore people, Conref dog. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, systematic theology in the Dutch tradition. It provides us with a fresh look on a lot of recent scholarship uh, and and what's in this volume, James? Well, this is this is one of those volumes that is is
3: difficult to sum up because, like you said, it is it is a traditional systematic theology uh, covering covering all the topics that you would expect, uh, topics that you've that you've seen dealt with elsewhere, um, beginning with. Beginning really with a prolegomena, they they tell you up front exactly what their method is, how they how they intend to proceed uh, with a study of dogmatics, even what dogmatics is. I, they don't presume uh, that everyone knows exactly what they mean by dogmatics, or sometimes called systematic theology. So, considering the the scope and the length of the book, I mean it's it's nine hundred some pages long, uh, so it is a it is a hefty one volume, uh, but the. The thing that would make it difficult is they really do they really do cover the whole scope of uh, of theological low key or, or topics um, that are discussed. So what I thought we could do uh, just in in introducing the book, and that's about what you can hope to do in a book review is introduce the book and make a few right. comments. Is just is just kind of look at their introduction where they define dogma, and then they give you uh, six characteristics or features of dogmatics and. And I'll, I'll just try to make a comment on how well I think the book uh, measures up to those aims. But first, uh, Van Genderen, who, who actually is the primary author of the work, I think he wrote all but three chapters, um, is actually uh, deceased now. And Velma, who's his, his co-author, who wrote three of the chapters, uh, is professor emeritus at, at Appledorn, I think the same school that Jeff mentioned earlier. Um, the book was originally written in 1992 in Dutch, and and has been referenced by a few English authors over the years, but really these authors are virtual unknowns to to the English speaking world. But that doesn't mean that they are uh, that they are novices. In fact, the the work Concise Reform Dogmatics is really produced in collaboration at the end of a very long teaching career for both of these men. So what what you're getting, and you get the sense as you read this that this is not, that this is not uh, a first attempt at theology, but you really are getting the fruit of many years of reflection and teaching theology uh, within, a, within a theological seminary. So there's an orientation towards serving the church uh, that permeates uh, the whole work, and I'll comment on that in a moment. Um, in the introduction, they, they define dogmatics or dogma as, quote, doctrine that the church, under appeal to the word of God, holds to be normative, End quote. They add to that that, quote, dogma expresses succinctly what the church views as central and essential in the biblical message. Dogmatics analyzes, presents arguments, and elucidates, end quote. End quote. So you get, a, you get a sense there of, of what they're doing. Uh, I think it's interesting that they say that it's, it's doctrine that the church holds right. to be normative in that this is they they don't really think of themselves as they do their work as, as sort of operating as individual theologians but they really think of themselves as as serving their own denomination and in in one sense um in one sense uh subscribing to the three forms of unity um the belgic confession the heidelberg catechism and the and the uh and dort, dort. And so so in doing that <laughs> in <laughs> thanks, doing jim. thanks jim In uh <clears throat> If you hear any pauses, yeah, just jump jump right in. But in in doing that, there's a very ecclesiastical and pastoral orientation, but in saying that, I don't mean to say that this is a work of pastoral theology. Um, having having uh, defined what dogma and dogmatics is, they, they open up by talking about six characteristics or features of dogmatics. And uh, I think it's important that we look at each of these and just make a comment about it. The first... Is what they call the ecclesiastical character, where they write, "Without the church, there would be no dogma. Actually, there could be no dogmatics either, but only strictly personal statements of doctrine." End quote. Um, so what they're what they're saying is that all that all theological reflection uh, and statements that are made are, are really a um, a churchly function. They don't they don't allow this. Um, to, they don't allow this to bar them from talking about things that don't directly affect uh, the church week to week, uh, but they do, mean to, they do mean to say that doing the work of dogmatics or writing theology is is really a, a ministry of the church, and they want to emphasize the, the dogmatician as minister.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and that's definitely how they think of themselves. You can tell as you read through the book that they think of themselves as ministering the truth to God's people, um, I mean, even as you think of the Heidelberg Catechism and how it begins, uh, you know, what is your only comfort in life and death? I mean, that, that's a very, that's a very pastoral way to begin a, a catechism for a church. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't start out strictly with propositions of things to be known, but it really is, it really is tempered by uh, a concern that people are being ministered to by the truth. So there's the ecclesiastical character. Uh, secondly, what they call the confessional character. Of dogmatics that there's that there's a churchly orientation of everyone who writes dogmatics, and I'm not talking only of themselves. They're basically describing systematic theology in general that that authors uh, tend to come from a certain uh, ecclesiastical orientation or commitment to a set of to a set of doctrine, uh, which to some extent sets the boundaries for their discussion. Now that's that's clear throughout this volume. You find you find. Countless references to the three forms of unity, the doctrinal statements of their of their own church that that really direct and lead them in their discussion um, that doesn 't mean though that concise reform dogmatics is simply a commentary on the three forms of unity in fact or that it
0: 's only helpful for Dutch people oh, yeah, dutch or that it 's only
3: helpful for the <laughs> dutch reformed tradition that 's right uh, just because someone has uh, i mean my my own tradition is not Dutch reformed, I love the three forms of unity but that 's not uh, the confession of, of my own uh, of my own church affiliation, uh, and and yet this serves this serves to in in a certain sense the confessional identity of dogmatics lets you know where the authors are coming right. from. Uh, they're right. not they're not going to they're not going to surprise you with something with something out of the blue. But you have a certain uh, upfront knowledge of of what the basic commitments uh, of the authors are. Uh, by saying confessional in character, though, they, they do say that theology or systematic theology is more than just repeating the tradition, uh, that dogmatics, just like the confession, goes to scripture itself. And so in one sense, though it's confessional in character, uh, the confessional character doesn't circumscribe the totality of dogmatics, meaning that dogmatics intends to th- say things beyond the confession, um, so what you're getting here is you are getting things beyond the confession. They might, they might even take cues from the confession, but they certainly don't restrict themselves only to the things discussed uh, in, in their church confession. Hmm. Um, the next thing that they describe is the systematic character of dogmatics. Um, and that's simply, and this is a very short statement, that, that dogmatics seeks to speak of God and his ways in an orderly fashion. Uh, Sometimes systematic theology, in fact today, systematic theology has sort of fallen on hard hard days in a way because, uh, I mean, the trend right now is biblical theology. Uh, The trend is biblical studies. Um, Old old and New Testament studies departments are flourishing and there seems to be a glut of graduates uh, in those fields. Systematic theology uh, is looked at as somewhat abstruse and rationalistic at times. And yet, uh, if we think of it this way, I think years ago I taught a, I taught a home Bible study when we were living in Los Angeles, and uh, we we decided to do with just our, our group of lay people on a Friday night and, and, and a series, an eight-month series on systematic theology. And I, I can remember one of the ladies in our study telling me at first that when we introduced our topic as being systematic theology, that she was just utterly discouraged. The first thought that came to our mind was, uh, systematic theology, that's just going to be over my head. Uh, what they do in saying that dogmatics seeks to be systematic is they're basically saying that this is, this is an organized way of thinking about God. In fact, that's what I said to our study years ago. I said, think of systematic theology as just simply trying to think of God and what he's revealed in, in an organized way or in, in helpful categories. Um, and I think that tends to help, and that's that 's what their stress is here um, that this is not biblical commentary, though it certainly uses biblical commentary. this is not looking at necessarily the historical progress of of revelation, um, like you might find in something like Voss right. uh, or Ritterboss New testament studies, old testament studies but this is but this is really trying to take all, all that is given to us in both biblical commentary. And a biblical theology, and say something uh, that's that's orderly uh, and and categorically unique. Um, James, yeah, Jeff,
1: do they do they uh, defend the notion of organizing our thought uh, like uh, Warfield does in his? Uh, I think it's the uh, the idea of systematic theology or the rights of systematic theology, because that that in our day in a postmodern age would be challenged, would it not? The whole yeah. idea that organization itself is a uh, is an imposition, uh, on the, on the discipline.
3: Right. I mean, the, I guess you could sum up that challenge to be something like if, if God wanted us to do systematic theology, well then why did he give us the Bible? Right. Instead right, of a right. systematic theology textbook. And no, you're in, in this, I think probably due to the nature of space and because they're just trying to set out their aims concisely, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> the, they do. They do leave out the longer discussion as to whether whether systematics is entirely warranted. I think you get passing references to it throughout the work as to why it's warrant. Why we are warranted in thinking categorically in this or that way. Uh, but yeah, making the defense uh, even from Scripture as as I think Warfield does. That even even right. Christ when he confronts the Pharisees expects them to have a, a somewhat systematic knowledge of the Old Testament. He expects them to have taken various passages, rightly interpreted, interpreted and deduced sort of the grand truth from those passages. Right. Uh, and and so I think even the expectation that we see in our own Lord and Savior warrants uh, a, a categorical, systematic approach to to. Uh, well let's let,
1: let's give an example of that that I think all of us are familiar with I mean th- this is a big issue it's the I, when Jesus confronts the, uh, the the Sadducees about the resurrection right. Uh, right what passage does he resort to to, to undergird the notion of the resurrection
3: uh, he resort uh, he resorts to i am the I am the God of Abraham
1: Isaac, Isaac and Jacob, Jacob. Right, uh, Exodus 3, the encounter with, of, with, uh, of Moses with the, uh, uh, with the Lord uh, at the burning bush, right? Right, and uh, so he's uh,
3: expecting that a theology of resurrection would be in part constructed by using that text.
1: Right, right, exactly. So that's both biblical theological and systematic theological in uh, at one and the same time right so anyway so they't they, don't, they they don't particularly deal with that issue at length then
3: no it, I think they're just sort of they're trying to make their relations clear and saying yeah we're, we're uh we're being systematic and we're not we 're not hiding that um, and i think that's I think that's important in a day when sometimes a lot of systematic theology is really uh is is really covert biblical theology um, <laughs> it, you, you know uh, so I think that there's a um, I think it's useful to say that. The other, the other thing they say, and this is getting a little more to the nature of their own work, they say that dogmatics is critical in character. After systematic, it's critical in character um, in that it aims to bring uh, differing viewpoints both inside one's ecclesiastical tradition and outside under biblical scrutiny. Um, so opposing other points of view gives, gives opportunity uh, for clear and precise articulation uh, of doctrine and response.
2: So it's polemical as
3: well. It is polemical, or you know, the old word is elent- elentic, yeah. right? Um, yeah. It is polemical, and yet uh, this isn't this isn't merely a piece of of polemics. Uh, the the book as a whole, though they though they have polemics in view, and they they are polemical in the sense that they they engage a whole host of of other viewpoints. Some of them, you know, within their own denomination. Uh, some of them, sort of in-house reform debates. But they also engage. Uh, the Roman Catholic uh, history of dogma. They engage. In fact, they even point out Karl Barth and Hendrikus Burkhoff as sort of two um, as sort of two figures, or that they use as foils throughout the book. And so, so they're engaging Barth and Hendrikus Burkhoff. Probably, probably Hendrikus Burkhoff, uh and uh, and uh, Garrett Burkhauser are engaged more than anyone else. Huh.
1: Well, that reflects their Dutch and specifically European reform context, right? Yeah, that's right. And I,
3: and I think, I mean, maybe on that note, as an aside, I should say there is a there is a certain um, provincial character to this to this book in that it is it is very Dutch. As you read it, uh, most of the m- many of the works they cite haven't been translated into English, um, so they they are really working within their own national context. Um, I see this as my own assessment is that that 's both a strength and a weakness, but more of a strength than a weakness and The strength especially for for uh, english English readers who aren 't really engaged in the in the Dutch uh, literature, is that it it opens a window of of conflict or or disagreement that may not be exactly mirrored in our own context meaning right. the the set of questions. That these authors are engaging are not identical to the ones that we've engaged. The advantage of this is that they are articulating uh, reform theology in, in a language that that brings some nuance that we might not be familiar with. Uh, brings some nuance that isn't identical to what we might have been accustomed to say in in uh, Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a real advantage to to looking into this Dutch context. I think sometimes it could possibly discourage the reader. He might feel like, "Oh boy, look, every, all, all the people he's arguing against are Dutch. I've never heard of these people, and I've never heard these <laughs> arguments." But I, I think positively, the advantage of that for us is it it brings us into the a way of nuancing reform theology that may be unfamiliar to us. And the the real outcome of all of that is. Is positive in that we get a sort of expanded range of, of ways to articulate uh, the reform position.
1: But doesn't it also, James, remind us that that debates within American uh, the American Church or the American Reform community uh, may may be in some senses limited in scope to our setting? So it's good to be reminded that there are, are other even within our broad, broader Reformed community there are debates going on that uh, that we may not be aware of.
3: Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, it is it is a reminder that as as we engage this whole set of questions and authors we've never heard of uh from a reform standpoint by reading this book, it's also a reminder that there is there is a, a bigger world out there than even our English literature and and the questions that we engage. Um there are there are challenges to our faith that we may not yet have encountered. W- what this book does is it really accelerates that right. that uh progress by by letting us encounter debates that aren't being carried on in our own language um right so i i don't i don't think that the dutchiness of the book is is a reason to be discouraged by it in fact i i i would say look at it from an opportunistic standpoint is the ability to to really listen in and engage uh other ways of other ways of thinking from a reform standpoint it brings it brings a kind of uh, nuance and sophistication to our reform doctrine that that probably wasn't going to come from an english author i mean i I think they have i think these writers have given us something uh that nuances our our reformed faith in a way that just wasn't going to come uh, from from an American or english writer
1: right. um,
3: sure. yeah. so that I I, that so I think the critical character is is important to the book. In fact, all all through the book, they're engaging other viewpoints, um, and sometimes they're doing this. This would be a good point to say this. Some some people may feel like, well, what if I don't want to engage the uh, the heavier give and take or the polemical uh, material? What if I'm looking for just the more positive presentation of the doctrine? Say for for use in a, in a home Bible study or a Sunday school class or just for a quick refresher. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, a reference work. A reference
3: yeah. work. I mean, you may not want to get into a close discussion of, of Hendrikus burkhoff or Wolfhard Pannenberg or, or Moltmann or Jungel or the other European writers. Um, in one sense, this is where the format of the book is really handy because the book is, the book is written to be read in two ways. Uh, there are two different font sizes that to at first glance looks a little bit uh, it doesn 't look entirely pleasant to the eye, but as you as you realize what the authors are doing it 's very it 's very useful because the the larger print is really the main the main text of the volume or, and whereas the smaller print is you can almost look at the smaller print as these kind of excurses or asides where they get into the more technical and critical aspects so I would say the critical nature of dogmatics in this volume is is mostly confined to the smaller print. Now, the, the beauty of the volume is that if you want to read all of it, you can read the large print, and if you just keep reading when you get to the small print, you don't lose any, any train of thought. The flow right. keeps going. But It's sort of like,
0: like when you read a book with heavy footnotes, and you really want that information, but it just it really splits up your reading, and it's really hard to always be bouncing from text to footnote.
3: It's it's no, like that, but I think it's a little right. bit more genius than that. Right, of course, it's right, right in because the text. Because no. it it doesn't no. even break up the flow of thought. Right. You, can, right. you can skip that stuff and go right back to the next right. where the large now, print picks up.
1: That, does that reflect the the kind of thing you find in, in Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, where his uh, you can read the larger print and then uh, the, the the smaller print is getting into the the details. Yeah, that's true. Uh, of a discussion. But some- uh, also, you also find that this format in some of the newer com- biblical commentaries, where the exposition of the passage is given in a large font or one particular font, and then the technical linguistic details are in a different font or a smaller font. And the same, almost the same kind of thing happens uh, in the uh, Bonson's uh, Van Til's Apologetic.
3: Well, that's reading.
0: similar, yeah.
3: Yeah, the, uh, nice, the nice thing with this is as you're going, they've really arranged it where you don't lose continuity if right. you want to read the small print um, and you don't lose it if you do. Um, and so there's really two ways to read the volume. I also think they're more successful than Bart because if you, if you dare attempt to read Karl Bart, uh, usually you don't know what he's saying in the big print unless you read the small print. Uh, True. Well, the small know.
0: print's just for geschichte reading. And the big prints for the history reading.
3: Oh, is that how it works? That's okay. well, okay. Well, let's suffice it to say that's not the case with the format of this volume. So, so it's true. It's critical, but I, I guess I want to say to our listeners, it's not it, the volume is not so critical to the point that you're not actually getting a a positive or constructive theology as as they're going along. Um, in fact, well, if you want to, if you want to put aside the critical stuff, uh, you can just read the large print and get a more a more positive, constructive feel.
1: But what, wouldn't you say that the term critical means uh, discerning and not merely uh, tearing apart, but also reading carefully? Yeah, that's or, right. Or and
3: there, there were times in reviewing the book where I, I did feel like, why did they put that discussion in the small print? It would have that, – that really should have been big print. And there were uh, a fewer times, but a couple of times I thought, boy, that discussion in the br- big print is going to discourage some people. Eh. In terms right. of you know but on the whole, I think they do a fairly successful job of keeping those the it 's almost like a two layered book, and they uh-huh. keep that more difficult layer uh, in the smaller print uh, if you don't have time or interest uh, to get into that but the critical nature is important; uh, they do see themselves as trying to set out the reform faith over against other positions and even trying to nuance it from within their own so they're not they 're not afraid of of critiquing. Uh, even, even well-known names in the Reformed tradition at points if they think that they have something more clear to offer from a biblical standpoint. Um, I wanted to add to that that they also mentioned the timely character of the volume. And if I could, if I could sum the book up, in fact, early on when I read it, I thought if, if I were looking for a slogan to sort of sum up the nature of this book, I would call it Timeless and Timely. Uh, that the book has it has a, it has a timeless quality to it, and you feel like you 're reading traditional reformed theology but you 're reading it articulated maybe in a way that your ears haven 't quite heard before it 's not novel they 're not trying to get beyond the past in fact they they, they stress uh, very clearly that it, that the first the first job of the dogmatician or the systematician is to is to patiently and humbly listen to previous generations uh, that have left us the legacy of you know, of, of twenty centuries of theological literature. So there's a there's real, a thought. there's yeah. That's I know. I mean, it's it's kind of um, you know they're they're not uh, iconoclastic toward the past, if we can put it that way. They're not trying to to tear down and rebuild from the ground up. In fact, they they've they carefully avoid that by dependence on previous generations. bavink maybe closer in the more distant past. Uh, uh, many references to Calvin. So they they see themselves as in a sense, the youngest generation of many that have made uh, contributions to Reformed theology, that's the, that's the timeless character of the book. Also, I think the use of the the historic confessions uh, in a kind of dynamic and rele- uh, relevant way also shows, though they're timely, there's also a commitment to, to truths and things that, that aren't shaken, that can't be changed. Uh, they don 't think that we need to the program or the the job of the reformed theologian is to overhaul the entire system, but it is to but it is to make reformed theology speak to the current issues uh, in theology with a, with a with a kind of timelessness and so on the flip side of being timeless they 're also timely in that they want to engage new questions and challenges that have arisen. Um, I thought, I thought they really did a remarkable job of engaging some of the major contributors of tw- to 20th century theology, uh, both ecclesiastically. They engaged to some extent Vatican II, but they also engaged a number of the um, documents produced by the Reformed synods uh, in the Netherlands. Some they disagree with, some they agree with. Uh, but they also then engage individual writers. We already mentioned Bart and Hendrikus Burkhoff, but the the other one that they engage quite a bit is uh, G. C. Burkharder, and uh, I think that's important in that there's definitely the influence of Burkharder on these writers in terms of their biblical orientation and their desire to really work from the biblical text. Um, but there's also I, I told Camden the other day I, I think in one sense with these writers you you get um, you get the best of Berk- Berkauer without <laughs> without the liabilities. Uh, wow, that's nice. <laughs> and in the sense that – and the liabilities are with Burkhauer that you have a kind of modified Bardian notion of election and of scripture. And when they get to those points, though they're very appreciative of Berkauer at other points, they're, they're, they're extremely critical uh, on those doctrines. So you get, a, you get a slight flavoring of of Berkauer's method – uh, without getting some of the more uh, novel and daring conclusions that Burkhauuer hey, came,
1: to James me. yeah James do you, what is there? Do, do they interact at all with with Berkauer's idea of what is it faith versus abstract dogma, any discussion of that uh, there's a, c- consistently in my reading of Burhauuer, I get this irritating the exci- yeah. the excitement or existential nature of faith over against the cold, hard, abstract. Doctrine.
3: No, I, I, I want to. I think that they avoid that fairly well. I think there's one er, There's one area where they, in one sense, I think they're negatively influenced by Berkauer, Uh And it's not. It's not in the dynamic nature of faith. They don't. They don't go off into kind of existential extremes the way Berkauer can at times. But but they do. But you can see a, a slight uh, hangover of this in in that you can pick up here and there a kind of anti-metaphysical tendency in these uh, authors. Yes. And I think that's especially demonstrated, uh, I think the book has some outstanding chapters. There, in any book this size, there's going to be a low light here and there. Uh, I thought one of the low lights was their chapter on the doctrine of God. Um, they, seem to be, they seem to be overly cautious. Uh, when I say that, I don't mean that we ought to be less cautious, but they seem to be cautious to a fault. Uh, in describing in describing God, especially God in Himself, in fact, at one point uh, you can find them criticizing Bavink for being what they think is too speculative. Oh, okay, <laughs> um, and so okay. there there's a little bit of an anti-scholasticism. At one point, they bemoan the scholasticism of the reform tradition and how it kind of slipped into scholasticism after the first generation.
0: now what do you, you had you had a thought about why that was? Well. Remind me of my thought <laughs> <laughs> or why it wouldn't have been. It was written in 92. Yeah, I
3: think. Yeah, that's a, oh, well, right. In terms it predates of predates con- Mueller. Yeah, that's yeah. And I, don't, yeah. I mean, I hate to I don't want to make Mueller bigger than he is. But but Mueller has. But then again, it's hard to make him bigger than he is because he is that significant. This is if you read the book as though it were written in 2008, um, I don't think that that would be totally fair to these writers and that you talked earlier about the Utrecht school and and oh. about Muller and Truman's method of reformed historiography and I think that's I think that would offer an, a, a kind of an improvement to the way that these authors sometimes see the reformed tradition don't, don't get me wrong uh, they're not uh, they're not pulling out all the guns against reformed scholasticism but you can you can detect a definite trepidation uh, about right. it as being as as tending to be rationalistic, and I do think that I do think that that might be a little bit of a lingering influence of Burkhauer in that Burkhauer was viciously anti metaphysical he did not want to speak about God in himself; it was always God as related to us in terms of salvation right. and now I,
1: remember that 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 view actually goes back at least to the eighteen hundreds because you find it uh, to a certain extent. In Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper, you find it to a certain extent in Herman Bavinck, and you find it even in Cornelius Van Til. Uh, so you've got to no. be—we've uh, got to recognize the history behind the, the uh, this discussion, uh, and and Jeff Jew uh, deals with it with regard to Van Til. You may remember. Okay
3: i I do think no i don't get me wrong. I, I think that their concern is on the right side i think, I think the concern of being overly speculative and getting too far from the text is correct uh, but i but I think also that it leads our authors to say too little sometimes, uh, I think especially in terms of the doctrine of aseity. Uh there's very There's very little mention of osseity or its implications for our doctrine of God um, there's a kind of passing reference to these things. They even make a reference to simplicity, which I thought, well, certainly they're not going to touch simplicity if they're anti-metaphysical, but <laughs> but they did, and they sought to uh, demonstrate a biblical basis for simplicity. But I think it leaves the reader feeling like there's more to be said, and I, I do think that that, that that is a little bit of the um, the remnants of, of maybe Burkhauer's influence, though I want to be guarded in saying that because I think that they are... Sufficiently critical of burhauer to to not be uh you know saddled with all of his faults
1: right. on that score james are they better are they better say than frames discussion of simplicity or is it about the same or uh... Uh, yeah
3: i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna rate it about the same as frames in that they acknowledge it they accept that it's there they don't criticize the doctrine but they do they don't do much to show what the implications of it are for like a reformed doctrine of god. Uh, right. you know more broadly considered. so I, on that you're right. i'm i'm not really happy with frame's treatment of simplicity not because he holds the wrong position but because he doesn't give you he doesn't really demonstrate why we ought to even hold simplicity. right, right. Yeah, that's the, uh, the
1: impression i got was that that he ho- he believes it but it's like who cares what difference does it make?
3: <laughs> and these guys are going to go a little further than that. they do you can tell that they i think they care more than frame but they're about as unhelpful as frame uh, in discussing it. Now, I I don't want to just I have to be careful though. I don't want to just dump on the work. I thought that that was that that was some of the worst of Burkehauer that was that they hadn't shed, but right. I think on the whole the best of Burkhauer, you know, Burkehauer's attention to to biblical data and constructing theology, I, I think that they really take that aspect and, and excel. I mean, there's a there's a lot of scripture in this volume, and I think that should be emphasized. Right. Uh, there, there is a lot of scripture, not just not just references in parentheses, but at times full discussions uh, dealing with the biblical text itself. And I, I thought that was really very fruitful in their discussion.
2: Hey, James, I got a question. I, actually, I got two questions. If that's okay.
3: All right, you can have two, Jim. Um,
2: Thanks, appreciate it. My first question is, uh, kind of going back to our discussion on biblical theology and systematic theology, we've mentioned a lot of names. Um, Are they self-consciously working within, let's say, the tradition of uh, the Ritterbosses and their insights into biblical theology, or do they um, eschew them, or or is there a helpful and healthy interaction with the, the Dutch biblical theology of the 20th century?
3: Okay, you, br- you bring up the question, and earlier I said that there, was, that there was a weakness or a liability to the provincial aspect of the volume, and I would, I would say that that might be one of the liabilities in the volume in that the, in the entire volume of this link, there is, there is only a single reference to Gerhardus Voss, um, and, and that reference is, is fairly passing and isn't really engaging any of the major contributions of Voss.
0: Uh, nothing to Ritterboss. No, no, there's, till- no there's more on Ritterboss oh, because okay.
3: Ritterboss is obviously working in the same country at the same time with these writers. And, and generally, I think in all but one comment, they're appreciative of Ritterboss. But they're not, they're not tapping into Ritterboss uh, into, the, in, w- into what I would see as the, as the major the, – the more significant contributions of Ritterboss. I, I'm thinking particularly of, of his discussion of eschatology in the first 100 pages of the book on Paul – um, they don't. They don't seem to reflect that uh, that perspective on eschatology. There's no. There's no reference whatsoever in the entire volume to Cornelius Van Til, uh, which I thought was interesting because there's some. They offer some great discussion on common grace, uh, and common grace, of course, has been a has been a raging debate within the Dutch Reformed yeah. world for m- yes, more yeah. than a century, uh, and. Sure. And Van Til was not an insignificant player uh, in that discussion of the 20th century. In fact, even, even G.C. uh when he was writing his studies in dogmatics, uh, engages Cornelius Van Til on common grace. So Van, Van Til seems to have escaped the, the notice of these authors entirely. Uh, I'm not saying that they aren't, there aren't Van Tilian directions in the volume. There certainly are because of that you know, similar commitment to Bavinck. But no, no, no real engagement with him, and I also didn't think that they that they have demonstrated serious engagement with Voss either.
1: No, James, my, my, do, oh, sorry, go sorry. ahead. Jim.
2: Oh, oh, I'm sorry, brother. Um, yeah, just real quick, my second question uh, might be uh, the big question uh, here, and and I have my own, given your review uh, opinion on this, I think, but. Uh, do you see this volume as being either more helpful, or complementary to, or a replacement of, um, uh, Burkoff's systematic theology, which has been used for so long within our own circles in terms of ministerial training, and training men for to think systematically and prepare them for, uh, for the ministry, and licensure, and, and presbytery exams, all that stuff?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good question because I mean, it obvi- I mean when it comes right down to should I buy this volume and should I spend time on this volume? I mean, the question is w- what's this going to do for me that the volumes that I already own and am familiar with don't do? And and in that sense I would see it as I would in my own mind I thought that as I read through and I would see it as a companion volume to to Lewis Burkhoff uh in the sense that in the sense that he, they don't simply uh, take the approach of Burkhoff and and uh, revise it, as it were. I, I think that they frame their discussions in different ways. I mean, if you're if you're familiar with Burkhoff, then you know that he, you know that he sort of sums up the other views and then usually concludes by articulating the reform view and setting it out in contrast, usually to the Lutheran, the Armenian, and the Roman Catholic. Um, yeah. In that, in that sense, his is a little, uh, I mean, Burkhoff's volume is a little more intuitive in that you know exactly how the discussion's gonna go when you get to it. Um, what Burkhoff Ber- what didn't do that these writers do is, is really critically interact uh, in a kind of in a more dynamic way with contemporary writers and ideas. Uh, he tends to take the traditional viewpoint set them out side by side compare evaluate the strengths and weaknesses and then state the reformed position and in that way I think I think it's crucial that we that we retain this is not a replacement of Burkhoff. Burkhoff is is crucial to really understand the reformed identity in the Christian tradition uh, what this what this does is this offers uh, a more I would say in some in some ways a more biblically oriented discussion of similar topics not not really repeating uh in fact they they have a comment where they say that uh something to the effect of theology is theology can restate we can restate reformed doc, doctrine without simply reiterating. Yeah. Uh this is not a reiteration of reformed doctrine uh this is this is really a restatement of the same truth without changing the truth and so in that sense, I would say uh, this is something to hold alongside of Lewis burkhoff um, this would be a it would be a great volume to look at for yeah for licensure exams if you want a more biblically oriented discussion um when I say biblically oriented, I don't mean more biblical than Burkhoff, but I mean interacting more with uh, with interpretations of text, that kind of thing sure. Um, in terms of the others that you mentioned, though, I would say this isn 't a replace. i mean obviously bovink is bovink it 's hard to say that i mean i 'm not counting on anything displacing bovink soon, but it 's a
0: supplement and it 's a
3: supplement it 's yeah. not attempting to displace us it 's attempting to put between you know two covers a, a single text that can be that can be you know referred to again and again. I do think that this volume uh, will become a go to text in the reformed world in terms of it it will be one of those volumes. Uh, on the sh- on the short list of people who want uh, you know good reference work,
0: mm-hmm.
3: right? Um, I should say I should say when they talk about the timely character of theology and when they interact critically, the volume does not does not simply devolve into a kind of surveyish volume uh, surveying this view and that view and the, and the other view and then analyzing and critiquing. There is there is a kind of positive and a constructive tone. Uh, that I would say transcends the critical so that so that you 're not just reading somebody 's survey of of other views, but you really are getting a positive articulation of the reformed faith, but maybe maybe nuanced with words uh, or ways of putting things that we 're unfamiliar with. Um, I should say lastly, and this is kind of the final thing I would say on the book, is what they call the practical character uh, of the book they they hold to the, re- the traditional reform notion that theology is both theoretical and practical. By theoretical means dealing with knowledge. I think that they would see uh, dogmatics as primarily dealing with things that ought to be known or, or credenda, A- and they would tend to look at uh, agenda or things that we ought to do as as more properly belonging to ethics. That doesn't mean, though, that the volume is impractical. In fact, I was, I was impressed with... Uh, with how many practical points that they bring up? I mean, they have discussions on the assurance of faith. Uh, they have a whole discussion on whether names can be erased from the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a there's a real. I mean, they talk about predestination and how that relates to faith. They talk about union with Christ in terms of assurance of faith. So I thought that there was a lot of pastoral and practical um, aspects to the volume, and yet. They they clearly want to avoid reducing theology merely to ethics, and they they have a, a sh- very short discussion of Kant, and how Kant really reduces all of theology down to down to ethics or things that ought to be done. And they want to they don't want to avoid that. Basically, um, ethical usefulness is not the final criterion for what Christians ought to know and believe, um, and that's and that's important. And they yeah, they do a good absolutely. job differentiating uh, between between credenda and agenda, and they, they are really interested in credenda.
2: Mm.
3: So, yeah, that would – those. I think those – and my estimation on those six things, uh, that, th- that theology is ecclesiastical, confessional, systematic, critical, timely, and practical, I, I actually thought that they did a fairly good job of measuring up to those standards as they wrote the volume – um, they they don't they don't uh, overemphasize one to the point where they they diminish the others. So it's really a nice balance of those six things t- throughout the whole
1: text. James, the when was the book actually published in Dutch? Ninety uh, so, okay, two. It, so it's not that that long ago.
3: No, but, it's not that long well. ago. I mean, there's still they're obviously something. I mean, they're not interacting at all with things like the new perspective on Paul. Um, in in their section on justification, so there are some developments that have that have sort of become contemporary issues that have arisen after they've written, but they they really do interact, uh, I think, intelligibly with a whole host of writers uh, and church documents, and yet they they somehow are able to do all of that while also engaging the biblical text quite extensively and constructively. So.
1: So if you if you had to give this a grade, what would the grade be? Uh, if I had to give it a grade, uh, yeah. I'd
3: probably give it an A minus and say definitely definitely buy it uh, because it's it's going to say it's going to state reform doctrine in ways that you haven't seen before. It because of that dual layer, uh, big text, small text way that the book is published. Uh, I I think that it's ex- they've made it accessible and interesting to a, to a wide range of readers. Uh, so and th- so, there's a lot of strong features again, I mentioned a few of the liabilities, but then again i'm I'm hard pressed to find uh any book lacking liabilities. so
0: <laughs> right again, that's concise reform dogmatics. It's available from Presbyterian and Reform publishers. You can pick it up now for thirty seven percent off at thirty just under thirty eight dollars. uh we'll have a link to that in the show notes you can you can grab a copy if you don't have one already. And uh I think we'll all agree and with along with James' assessment of an A minus, definitely worth having on the shelf next to your other systematics texts. Well thank you so much for that review. It was extremely thorough and I think will be very helpful. Um not only in in recommending the book to be purchased, but I, I really enjoy reviews like that because as people buy it and read it themselves, they, they'll have a little bit of a framework to assess the book as they right. read it. Um, so thanks, James, for that. That's very helpful.
1: Yes, James, thank you.
0: Uh, I want to point everybody back to the website. You can visit reformedforum.org for more information and more news and articles. Uh, we're expanding our network. We have feedingonchrist.com, which is integrated into the Reformed Forum, and we've also launched a new website called historiasalutis.com. It's a a website devoted to biblical theology, so you can visit that. Uh, Links to all of those things are available uh, at the top of the Reformed Forum page. You can also listen to Christ the Center, our podcast uh, devoted to issues in Reformed Theology. We want to thank everybody for listening, and if you need to get a a hold of us, visit the contact page. But until then, we want to encourage you to read. And Jeff? Tola Lege. Pick up and read.